0: listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy the Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister.
1: I'm reminded of how much there is to distract us from practice. Um whether it's a really cool ringtone or it's something far more natural like a cat in heat on day three of a sashin that I was involved with. Uh, a sashin in Zen is where we we sit for seven days and it's more or less about 14, 13, 15 periods of zazen. And, uh, you know, so we're pretty much on the cushion most of the time. We're even eating our meals sitting right there on the... Uh, uh, you know, on the ton on the raised meditation platform. And typically you'll find that if, some of you may have done this already, but you'll find that the first day is adrenaline and exhaustion. The second day starts to hurt. The third day is excruciating. And the fourth day is like, why am I doing this? Um, so right in day three, I believe it was mid-afternoon, um, I am getting distracted by all sorts of stuff in this realm of sound, you know. Uh, The person next to me was breathing too loud. There was somebody crying on the other side of the zendo, you know, just kind of sniffling and so forth. Uh, uh, I then started to hear underneath the zendo a cat who was clearly in heat decide to express herself fully um, as she... uh, uh, got down with every other male cat in the entire area. And, you know, you're sitting there, you're sitting there, you know, trying to, you know, be tolerant and accepting of everything. it's like, God damn, you know, just really everything kind of tensed up in me. And the Dharma talk that was given that afternoon was really about this idea of it's always something. It's always something. We're never going to have the perfect Meditation that we plan out. We're never going to have the perfect anything unless we're able to incorporate, really mindfully, this idea of imperfection. And the minute you can, the minute you can develop a certain fluidity to the way things arise and cease, is the minute that that fluidity becomes, in Latin, humor. You're able to crack up at the fact that you're sitting there trying to be, you know, very, very aware and so forth, and your phone goes off, or you're very aware and so forth, and the cat underneath the zendo is having a grand old time, or you, or whatever it is, that our ideas of perfection, we can begin to develop some space around them. Furthermore, our ideas of imperfection, we can start developing this acceptance of what is as it is now what brings most of us to deep spiritual work is the idea that eh, something ain't quite right it might be something really obvious i thought i was ready for death and now i'm recognizing i'm not or it might be something like you know i have nothing left i'm at the end of my rope it might be curiosity it might be greed I want enlightenment. You know, whatever it is. Whatever brings us to these chairs, these cushions, is perfect. It's the perfect, or rather I should say, you by being here are offering up the perfect response to some deep thing that's going on within. And it's not always obvious. Sometimes it's very subtle. but how do we inspire ourselves when the going gets tough? How do we keep going when we're hitting the suffering of day three in a sashin or day four? How do we keep going when there doesn't seem to be any payoff? This has been a huge theme you know, that we have talked about for uh, you know, uh, on and off for a few months here in this, in this sangha, in this group. And I don't know that I really have answers but I do have questions and the question that I think we can all kind of you know sit with is what am I doing why am I here although I don't like why questions because it usually gets the ego all you know really spark the mind in ways that other kinds of questions won't why are we here what do I want And if we can begin to coalesce our attention around that very question, what do I want? We can begin a journey that allows us to study the source of who we think we are. And the minute we can get to that level of awareness the minute we can start actually backing up, backing up, backing up, or drilling down, drilling down, whatever metaphor you want to use, and we can start actually plumb, we can plumb these depths, we start to have these really fascinating openings reveal themselves through our experience. And the openings always point more or less in the same direction. It's that There's nothing to be taken personally. And this is like one of the hardest things, hardest things for practitioners, especially as they start to hear. But it's exactly where this path leads. Among other things, this is one of the the major, you know, two-by-fours to the noggin. It's like, I can't take anything personally. And... I'll talk about that a little bit more after we sit. But perhaps one of the really fascinating things that any of us could do just in this moment right now is consider, what did you take personally today? What caused you to tense up? And looking very carefully at that, we can actually begin to get to the roots of it. You and I will never tense up around anything unless we fear loss of something. it can't happen we cannot tense up unless we fear the loss of something actually if you really want to get down to it fear all fear is is a projection of some future loss so if we can just kind of consider this we might even be feeling tense right now which is okay can you just meet that tension? Can you meet whatever it was that happened today or yesterday if there was something that you took personally? Can we just meet it? Just be right there with it without running from it or without indulging it. Just being right there with it. Doing this allows for the path to reveal itself in some pretty spectacular ways. There's no magic to this. There's, I mean, there's the mystery I I once had a teacher say the biggest mystery is why more people aren't doing this why more people aren't actually beginning to kind of look and question very deeply how it is that they live that we continually use the mind in the same ways that got us into trouble and use that very same mind and those very same patterns to try to extricate us from Are suffering. Ain't gonna work. This, if you will, new way of thinking is actually pretty basic and not real new. It's watch. Watch. Be the watcher of your experience in all cases. Watch your experience before you become the experience yourself, before you are angry. Look at the being prior to anger. Look at the anger. Just look at the... Whoa, anger's arising. Hmm, yeah, God. That observation, that watching, actually gives us the very space I was talking about at the very beginning of this little intro talk. Nothing too major, except that it'll fundamentally alter your life. At least that's what they say. That's what I'm telling you. Don't believe me. Practice it. Practice it. Practice watching. So during meditation tonight, that's your assignment. Watch. That's it. Whatever's coming up is perfect. Practice there. Practice with whatever is coming up. You don't have to be in meditation for this to work. Your life becomes a meditation the minute you actually can Accurately and mindfully uncover what's happening in any given moment, in any given situation. Simple, but not easy. Okay? But this really is the work. No matter what's going on, no matter what state you are in, that is the perfect state to practice. You're feeling just utterly depressed. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Now you can study your depression. But I don't want to study my depression. I don't want to be depressed. Well, that's understandable. Okay? But the way not to be depressed is not to ignore it. It's to participate with it fully. If you're participating with your depression fully, your depression cannot maintain its state of inertia. what's revealed underneath that depression joy it's a natural state that natural state of grace and ease is always underneath everything okay if you are intimate with your natural state of grace and ease you will find it most likely will intensify at least it will become far more accessible when that state of grace and ease is covered up by some either minor or major clinging that your ego is going for. Something from the past that it's clinging to or something in the future that it's clinging to. It puts you into this present moment, into the now. And in that opening right there, nothing can be taken personally because the self that defends, the self that attacks, is no longer there. Instead of being a something, it's just being. So as we sit in meditation tonight, just watch. Just be. So hey Dogen was a uh, Zen teacher who... Uh, Parented the Soto uh, tradition in Japan. There's a little quick history here. It went from India north, kind of uh, split off into some really interesting ways. Uh, The Vajrayana, of course, was like Tibetan and so forth. And then we moved to China and we have what's called Chan Buddhism. You cross the Sea of Japan and Chan becomes Zen. Okay? And then Zen splits off into two. Rinzai and Soto, and uh, Rinzai was pretty much the the Zen of the uh, the samurai. Uh, royalty was uh, oftentimes affiliated with the Rinzai Rinzai tradition. The farmers, on the other hand, were part of Soto, and um, the uh, the key figure in in the Soto tradition. And those of you that are Zen scholars, you can probably bake me uh, on this one, but uh, the the key thing with Ehe Dogen was his ability to take this wildly complex stuff and then turn it into these phrases that just would knock people. And in very simplistic terms, he would oftentimes present uh, core teachings. One of the best, uh, one of the first that I ever learned was where Dogen said... Um, The study of Zen is to study the self. When we study the self, we forget the self. When we forget the self, we are enlightened by all things. A one, two, three step process there. Like a climb, a summiting, and a coming home. Okay? And the studying of the self means that we put it into even more simplistic terms. We study everything that is arising And in studying everything that is arising, we start to see these gaping holes in our experience. If we study the self, for instance, okay, we start recognizing that there isn't a lot to really point to. I mean, is the self, is this the self, or is this just the body, or is this the self, or is this just the noggin, the mind, or the brain? Where is the self? And then when we start stumbling around trying to figure out what the self is when we study it we start seeing that there's really nothing there that it's a series indeed of relationships a series of relationships that we then create stories around we being our own minds our own egos our own small selves create stories about themselves And this is how they function in the world. Thinking that this ultimately quite small aspect of being is the whole story. And Dogen was very clear about this. Once you start seeing through that whole story, it starts to kind of become something that ain't so substantial. It's incomplete at best. And when we start seeing this incompletion, we can then actually... Start recognizing how all things point us in exactly the same direction. All roads lead to Rome. Rome, of course, metaphorically being here, awakening. So, what does this mean? Well, I want to clarify a, uh, a word for you that's used a great deal in spiritual, uh, spiritual circles. Um, two words actually form and emptiness form is any thing anything okay it could be physical or it could be mental an idea is a thing okay a conviction a meditation cushion a car a kid a relationship those are all things Well, going back to Dogen, when we start studying the self, we forget the self and we become enlightened by all things. When we start studying all things, we start to see that at their core, they're not really substantial. In other words, if you look at this beautiful fake plastic ficus here, it is fake, by the way, for those of you who didn't know, what's the difference between that ficus And any of us in this room? Well, you could say, it has leaves. I don't have many. Um, It's fake. I'm real. I'm animated. Okay? I can speak uh, English and a little bit of German, even less Norwegian. Okay? But ultimately, what do we have here? We've got something that, like me and like you, is subatomic spin, ultimately. Ultimately, it's composed of space and organic material. Okay. All right? Just like all of us. In other words, the difference between who we think we are and everything else is only available to us at the interpretive level of Mind. We have all this biological material, these eyes, these ears, these noses, these tongues, this skin, all of this, these ears, all of it, perceiving separation. When in actuality, the perceiver of all of that stuff is all there too. Now this gets really kind of heady and kind of trippy. Lots of people kind of go, all right, help. Well, think of this. Think of how every single thing, ultimately at its core, is empty. Every one of us is made up of more space than we are made up of stuff. That space, that emptiness, is exactly. Where much of the authentic teaching, regardless of its tradition, where it's pointing towards, it's this recognition that we all can really actually manifest in the world. We can have this recognition that, oh my God, there's nothing really there. We forget, if you will, the self. And in forgetting the self, we start recognizing this vast interdependence, this incredible cosmic dance and cosmic giggle that are playing together constantly whether we recognize it or not it's always going on so when we can begin to kind of see through this stuff we can see through our own attachments to what and who it is that we think we are we can get a little bit deeper and we can realize you know what I am made up of stars just like everything else the stars are made up of the same stuff I'm made of. I mean, it's everything is all one thing with variance. All we are essentially is variance. Every face, every one of you can recognize a face. Each one varies a little bit. We are all variances of the infinite, of spirit. So with this being the case, <laughs> we can now Start to look at our world a little bit differently. We can look at our own experience, our own minds, our own interpretations of experience a little bit differently. We can see that we are a series of relationships, that there's nothing about us that is fixed, that we're constantly in a space of flow, we're constantly in the middle of humor. And if that's the case, then we can't really take anything that's thrown at us as as a personal affront. It's not personal. And yet the mind would have us think that everything is indeed personal. That we are here to fight for what is ours. now the only reason why we'd really fight for what is ours is to protect something that we fear we're going to lose and one of the great spiritual truths is over a long enough timeline the survival rate for everyone goes to zero you can't that's from Fight Club by the way there is there is no way you're taking anything with you that was from Moss Hart I think Wasn't it? You can't take it with you? Who wrote that? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, it was a play, stage? Kaufman and Hart. Kaufman and Hart. I think it was Moss Hart who wrote that line. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. You can't take it with you. It's already gone. So whatever it is that we're hanging on to is something that is going to be ripped from us. So why not relax a little bit? Relax open around this okay? open around whatever stories we have going inside our heads of things we need to protect recognize that we can't protect them really we can better our odds of preserving them but don't confuse that with protecting as in creating a certain permanence If we can do this, if we can soften a little bit here, we can dance a little bit more easily with our experience of life. In fact, I would argue uh, that the teaching points us in this really cool direction. It says anytime you are feeling like there's a personal affront or something like that, you're being, being given an amazing opportunity for practice. You're being given an amazing opportunity for practice because... Anytime you feel personal affront, you are feeling resistance. And the only thing that can feel resistance is the ego. Whatever is beyond ego and can watch ego feels no resistance. Just like a mirror does not resist what it reflects. With this uh, concept in mind, I wanted to read you something um, read you something from awaken this life imagine the implications of knowing that ultimately there is nothing to own control or possess that everything is totally out of your hands and yet this realization also shows us that while everything is out of our hands all we might ever need is within us this may sound puzzling to the mind But those returning from the mountain forever know its truth. The realization of impersonal awareness arises spontaneously once we begin to study everything about our experience that is personal. So the personal is going to be egoic. The impersonal is going to be what's beyond ego. The watcher, the witness, the seer. The ego itself is a thing, right? Okay? What is it that can observe those things? Now we give it a name, we call it the seer, we call it the witness, but is it really a thing? It's actually what can observe all things, and yet it cannot be observed. This is a key point, okay, for everyone in this room, this is a key point on this path, and I'm, hope, I'm hoping at least a couple of you will kind of pop at this a little bit. What can be observed by the observer is a thing. The observer itself cannot be observed. It is not a thing. We give it a name, but it's not a thing. And if it's not a thing, it cannot be born in time. It has no past because it can watch the past. It has no future because it watches our projections of the future. If it's beyond time, it is eternal. This is who we really are. So when people, spiritual teaching, uh, spiritual teachers say, oh, well, your eternal grace, what are they talking about? They're talking about this very witnessing presence the see the seer all all of these words that we can give to this observer okay puts us in this impersonal space the observer sees the personal it on the other hand is utterly impersonal it's something we all share our awareness my awareness amy's awareness dee's awareness they they're all the it, it's the same Awareness. It can become individualized. It can become personal, my personal awareness. I'm here. Amy's sitting over there. Okay? But ultimately, awareness itself has no characteristics. It's the same as being. And when we start relaxing into this space, this deep surrender to just being, We're no longer anything. We're no longer I am depressed, as I mentioned, or I am angry, or I am happy. We just are the am. We are just being. There's tremendous awakened freedom in this space. Our motives, our desires, our memories, our dreams, and our resistances all begin to fade away as we practice paying attention all of these personal things are brought under an intense scrutiny and the stillness uncovered by meditation integrates itself into our lives rather than our habitual place of reference being our personal unconsciousness acting on our mind made stage we can start with the stillness practice in order to orient each experience around our ability to watch things impersonally especially our unconsciousness and fear In other words if we can begin to watch our experience as it's happening totally this creates space this makes it so instead of having a reactive life we are actually able to live a conscious life we're able to bring a mindful presence into our experience as our experience We're orienting ourselves around an awareness that sees as opposed to an ego that runs. We orient our life around a clarity of what's really going on as opposed to the murkiness of our attachments to doubt, to fear, and to self. And it's kind of, I mean, I know I'm hitting you guys really hard tonight. I apologize if you want an easy one. Um, But as much as this can be kind of, you know, a lot, it really is the work. The work is to study the self with utter fearlessness. What makes us do the things we do? What's at the core of that behavior? of that decision-making. What's underneath this communication that seems so sketchy or even destructive or even perfect? What's at the core of that? We begin to ask questions of ourselves and of our experiences. We begin to become really, really hyper-aware of exactly what's going on. And as that awareness kind of permeates, generosity flourishes. And that's really, that's what happens when you come home. When you answer the call. When you study the self and you begin to kind of see through the self and you become enlightened, awakened by all things, you begin to come down the mountaintop with that view still fully a part of who you are integrated into who and what you are but you come walking back into the world with gift bestowing hands you're here consciously to touch lives there's a little space tonight for Q&A yes sir
2: so relating what you were talking about to the parable of the cat yowling beneath the end of
1: Thor the the cat yowling was just part of of the, the cat the cat underneath the Zendo was exactly that. And as
2: was as, um, question, sorry. Sure. As was your distraction mm-hmm. and your annoyance at the distraction.
1: Exactly. put me my annoyance at the distraction of the yowling cat put me in direct contact. With the ego. I could watch it. I could watch it spin. Authoring stories like this. Why can't they, you know, if only, if they always, cats. The so question
2: is, is the uh, problem you were having was really that you were clinging
1: to uh, non-yowling.
2: Problem you were having that you were clinging to a desire to be in some meditative state, which was not what was happening.
1: Exactly. At the moment. I was clinging to my ideas surrounding what the meditation should be like, not what the meditation was. And then I quickly realized, "Huh, that sounds like my life." I'm clinging to a picture that I have. Of how exactly my life should be looking, as opposed to opening to what my life was actually offering. <coughs> so uh, nine bows to that cat who was in heat underneath the zendo. You know. So you think the
0: young Zen
1: masters put it I'm I'm doubting that they did, but damn, that would have been a funny choice tr- Zen masters typically don't have a great sense of humor, you know. <laughs> At least the ones that I worked with didn't. I I can't imagine any of the teachers that I was working with saying, (laughs) let's put a cat that's in heat underneath this. Yeah, I can't imagine. (laughs) Does that make sense, though? Yeah. Yeah, Charlotte. Michael,
0: when you're talking about studying the self and studying the mind... It seems that that goes on during the sitting practice when you're meditating. Uh But then it also can go on 24-7 by just being mindful and being present. But I'm wondering if it's a different activity when you're not sitting, when you're just living? Or is it sort of all the same (coughs) thing going on?
1: Witnessing is non-activity. In the midst of activity. It's what's observing the activity. Yeah? So, whether you're sitting still and cultivating this calm, or you're in the middle of fire, the witnessing awareness, that presence is the non-activity, or it's, I put it this way, it's what's prior to any activity. It's what's prior to any the mental noise that deals with the fire or the peace. Does that kind of make sense?
0: Yeah, actually, it, um, yeah, it does. It, it's, um, I'm thinking about the act of meditation of bringing your mind back, you know, uh-huh. is kind of like when you're out in the world trying to stay there uh-huh. and not have your mind go off making up stories Sure, or it's sort of the same sort of um, attention or awareness
1: sometimes it's helpful to think of it this way um, your witnessing awareness your watcher your seer is the one thing that is never not there It's always there. Always. Always there. Now, clouds roll by to keep its radiance from, you know, hitting life. But uh, meditation removes one cloud at a time so that that clarity, that radiance, it's not something we... You don't have to work at witnessing. You just have to kind of back into it Right, Witnessing right now, you can, you can witness the experience of your left ear. Everyone in this room can witness the experience of their left ear. Now move it to your right shoulder, please. You can experience that, right? You can witness your right shoulder. Did that take any work to move from left ear to right shoulder? No. No. Okay. It's utterly available. Okay? Now move to the top of your head. Okay? Witness the very top of your head. At any point in time you can be sitting at your computer in your cubicle wondering why am i here you know whatever and you can actually go through this witnessing your emotional space witnessing your physical body witnessing whatever okay but you become a spiritual athlete by exercising this muscle um if you want to call it that clumsy metaphor but you get the idea Uh, And then what are you doing ultimately? You're you're studying the self. You're starting to see that your self is nothing other than a series of relationships, all of which are moving all the time. Okay? The witness itself does not move. It's vast. It encompasses. It can point or reflect, I should say, whatever is coming up in front of it. play with that. See where it takes you. (laughs) Yes, Steve.
2: Yeah, I I was surprised. I found myself really bristling tonight at the uh, the not taking it personally. Mm -hmm. And and sort of how deep you were going with that. Um, You know, I I can you know, and for years could feel very much on board with the inquiry into the self that leads to not fighting over parking spaces and you know, not fighting with your spouse and not worrying about fame or fortune or anything like that, but there's a point, there comes a point way deep back when it seems to butt up against, like, this obliteration of the self altogether, mm-hmm. right? And you were there tonight. You were talking in that area, and, you know, I found... At
1: that obliteration a... point? Yeah. Yeah? Well... What did I feel like?
2: Or just where you reduce that. It's uh-huh. scary. Yeah. It's scary. It makes me want to hop on over to the chapel. Yeah. <laughs>
1: We're, we're, you can we're, get saved there
2: well no 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 but seriously we we 're things like you know love matter mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know and there 's something sort of special about human beings yeah. like, we 're not like the ficus you know we 're actually special you know it makes me want to you know it sort of triggers that feeling right know? because you know it, you know and i 've sort of been there with the certain spaces before, like studying Buddhism, but you know it gets very nihilistic, it gets very close to like Nothing matters at all, and that I find very frightening.
1: If you heard me say nothing matters, then can I correct myself?
2: You didn't say that. It's what it sounds like. Ah,
1: okay. So it sounds like nothing matters.
2: Or or it sounds like, it sounds like when you start talking about the observer who can't be observed, that we're just pushing God back. You know, it's another word for God, mm. and we're kind of like finding a little thing that we can rest on there that maybe doesn't exist either you know what I mean uh-huh. reducing it back to something that we're going to give a nice name to the observer uh-huh. nothing can touch it it's pure it's God but are we making that up just to make ourselves feel better as we hit the wall of nothingness
1: it's, it's, it's such a good question and it's so fraught with egoic clinging so as you start to observe that the, the impulse to that resistance okay it's giving you something and guess what it ultimately will give you? What it ultimately leads to is what you find in the chapel: love, joy, tenderness, compassion, song. And so, what we run into time and time again, as a, as a Buddhists or, in this case, secular Buddhists, uh, you know, people saying, you know, exactly, you know, you articulated it so brilliantly. This nihilism, nothing matters. No, everything matters. Everything is born out of this infinite. Everything. Okay? What we're trying to do is connect that infinite with everything about who we think we are. And we start recognizing who we are not. And the ego freaks out and says, Oh my God, I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this. I must not exist. Welcome. You are a figment of mind. You are a dream that has come into this space, okay, and thinks very highly of itself. And now what we're doing is we're looking at the man behind the curtain. The great Oz isn't so scary anymore. Toto did his work. Okay? That's what meditation is. Toto. You heard it here, folks. (laughs) Toto is meditation. And so when we peel that, that curtain back, and we start seeing things as they really are, joy cannot help but come up. It's like, oh my God, how did I miss that? Christ went through this. One of the great Buddhas of history, you know? Uh, and I, I, I would actually say any, any sage goes through this deeply human experience of egoic obliteration. And then, egoic reconfiguration. And that egoic reconfiguration is actually an integration with what's beyond it so that it can never really take over like it did before. It can never really do the things it did in the way, ways that it did before because it knows that the jig is up. It knows that, you know, this thing I've been working on, this stage of mind, I've been working on this play, it's so convincing, and now the audience realizes itself. The observer recognizes itself. And... uh The fourth wall's broken, so whatever I do here is just a stage play. It's not, it cannot be perceived as real with the weight that it once could be perceived as having. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I, I guess, uh, you know, like what I just felt tonight, and maybe this is just a credit, you sort of led us there, was that my intellectual acceptance of that moment of obliteration or whatever of the self um, felt more palpable and frightening, you know, a little bit tonight, because I don't. I don't, you know, I think there's a lot probably that happens in that moment with Christ out in the desert. Yeah. Not all of it's joy. You know, like, yeah. you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like horror, horror, horror. Assume. Right. And, um, you know, I think you sort of somehow evoked that. You know? Good. So thanks.
1: Good, yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad you appreciated the pain. And, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, you know what, Steve? This is hard work. This is hard work. I mean, most people show up to meditation so that they can feel a little better. And ultimately, that's exactly where it leads us. But it's not that we feel better. It's that we feel more conscious. That's the work. We begin to feel more conscious. And as we start feeling more conscious, what happens to our baseline of happiness? It actually increases. Happiness is a state. Fear is a state. Security is a state. All states are temporary. The traits, however, that start coupling themselves with this work as we begin to integrate that obliteration point We start trusting that, yeah, I'm going to get obliterated, but you know what? I'll still be here. I will still go to the party, I will still do the dishes, and I will still be able to kiss my wife, or husband, or kids, or mailman, or whatever. By by the way, mailmen love being kissed. (laughs) Everything Everything begins to actually expand and become a reflection of that big self as opposed to the small self that is saying what the hell are you doing I got you here I've gotten you this far you messing with me because I'll go to war in ways that you don't expect and it does you know and what do you do you've got that much stronger observer that can watch the machinations of a very subtle egoic war the brigades aren't brought out now it's cloak and dagger very exciting and quite funny Thank you. Thank you for coming tonight. I really appreciate it.